0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like potatoes, banjos and partridges in a pear tree, or (laughs) prams,
1: spams, dams, iams, it's all about me, lambs and whams last Christmas. This got me thinking about... Christmas tunes, and have you heard of this phenomenon called Whamageddon this year, Sam? No, I've read I read it in the paper, but I didn't I didn't follow up what oh, it was. Oh, basically, what it is is this was in the Guardian the other day. Being such left leaning uh, connoisseurs of the newspaper uh, that we are, um, this is basically the idea that you should not listen to Wham's Last Christmas from the start of Advent through to beyond Christmas, and already I have failed miserably with this because I must have heard it at least 20 times already. Mm-hmm. Every shop you seem to walk into is either Wham's Last Christmas or Mariah Carey. It's that time of year. Just imagine if you were working in a store where they had Christmas tunes on all the time and one Christmas album that they played on repeat throughout the Christmas period. I really... God, it would drive me absolutely mad. However, (laughs) this is to digress as ever, because what we really should be doing, and what we will be doing, we can guarantee you, dear listeners, is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, that the history of debt is in fact all about the age of American independence, character, morality and charity, debtor's prison and the material culture of debt. It's about the law and punishment via Charles Dickens. It's about genealogy and discovering skeletons in closets, debtors in your family tree. It's about economic bubbles, including the South Sea bubble and tulip mania. It's about King Cresus. It's about tally sticks and the Roman view of ethics on the acquisition of art. Of course it is. Is Or who knew that the history of teenagers is in fact all about the lost generation in China during the Cultural Revolution. It's about oral history, bedrooms and anthropology, 20th century US pop culture and
0: high schools. Who knew? (laughs) Such good episodes, both of those. Uh, My fellow presenter, who is this man talking to? If history were a flock of lost, wandering sheep, cold in the mountain winds, he would be the kindly whistling shepherd, finding everyone, every member of his historical flock, however injured, lonely or sick, and he would bring them home to warmth in his hearth with his whistle and crooks of research. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, and you. our minds are on
1: similar tracks Mm. uh, here. Uh, You may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a shepherd-related historian, he'd only be the good shepherd himself, tending to his historical flock, protecting them from the wolf of untruth and delivering them to safe pasture, all the while finessing his historical skills in his shepherd's hut reading a volume or two yes you've guessed it it's the famous historical adventurer dr sam willis
0: hello everyone and welcome to another of our christmas episodes i hope you're enjoying them we've done some truly splendid ones so far uh, donkeys and stars and today we are going to be doing the history of shepherds uh, which is brilliant i've really enjoyed this one I- i've enjoyed this one are you enjoying
1: the run-up to christmas Oh, yes, very much so. Good oh, good, ways. because
0: we are. I
1: just—that was a, a segue into some cracker jokes. Because we, we, we <laughs> no. in the Daybell household, are obsessed with crackers. As soon as they come on sale, we buy up a, a dozen, half a dozen boxes. And this year, we're in fact making our own. We have three birthdays in the run up to Christmas, each of which demands its own special dinner with crackers and i just wanted to share you will share with you some of my favorite cracker jokes <laughs> before we get started okay here we go sam what's green covered in tinsel and goes ribbit ribbit
0: i um i don't know Mistletoad. Mistletoad. Oh, oh, damn, it's good what do
1: ducks do before their christmas dinner so they open quackers. They do. They pull their Christmas quackers. Um, uh, a, little bit like, um a bit like Elma Fad. Uh what does Santa suffer from if he gets stuck in a chimney? Oh, that will be flu. Claustrophobia. <laughs> uh very good. That very good. Claustrophobia. And this one is my is my total and utter uh favourite one. Um uh, <laughs> what do you call a bunch of chess players? Talking about chess in a lobby. (laughs) This is a complicated one. A bunch of chess... I don't know. Chestnuts boasting
0: by an open fire. Very good. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Anyway, we're not doing crackers. We're doing shepherds. Yeah, we're doing shepherds. Um, And there's so many different ways you can think about it. I became slightly obsessed by... the the fact they were doing their tending their flocks in the in the Christmas story, they're doing it by night, and I realised that you could place um, these shepherds into the whole history of working night shifts, <laughs> which I thought was really cool. Um, and you could explore that. I mean, I haven't had much time to go into it, but I think it's worth pointing out that it, it is interesting that they do have to be awake at night, and I think this would have been very common in um, nomadic nomadic societies and nomadic tribes as well. Then you've got the use of torches or flames, one sort of another, to provide light at night. James talked a little bit about light at night uh, being cast from stars and how everyone's um, relationship with the sky at night has definitely changed over the years. And I think it's really important to, to be aware that people would have been very familiar uh, familiar with with. Uh, with the night sky particularly if you are a shepherd uh, watching your flock by night. Um, obviously you've got soldiers guarding military camps at night and sailors doing so as well those are actually quite easy to get into the histories of because you can look at log books, you can hit it, look at descriptions of what was going on Now interestingly quite a few battles were fought at night as well Um, But then you've got this whole change to 24 hour societies as we know them now and the impact of the Industrial Revolution on that and how that combined with urbanisation basically demands the creation of shift work about people uh, having to work for um, shorter periods of time, then resting and then working again to allow factories or whatever it might be to operate uh, at 24 hours. Um, And I was just generally interested in this when I remember working uh, doing night shifts for the post office when I was a student doing my PhD, doing that over Christmas. But that that whole, the the way that the working world changed, um, you know, from pre-industrial society to industrial society and now to what's going on now and globalisation obviously has a, a massive history. And you can place those wonderful shepherds tending their flocks by night within that story. Oh, very good. Very, very good, Sam.
1: I love that. I'm going to talk about real shepherds as well, and I've been doing some digging around in Inquisition records about shepherds. But it's also worth, and I've been thinking about this, we've actually been quite sort of Christian-centric in the way in which we've been approaching Christmas, because, of course, it is a, a Christian festival that has been sort of secularised and commercialised. But it's worth it's worth thinking about where. That our inspiration for shepherds comes from, and it is because of uh, the Bible, and in particular Luke two eight to twenty, where it sets up the story of the shepherds taking care of their flocks at night. An angel then appears to them, tells them not to be afraid, brings them great news: this very day in David's town, your Saviour was born, Christ the Lord. And they would they travel off, find him, uh, baby wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. And the angels appear singing praises to God, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom he is pleased. Uh, The shepherds go off to Bethlehem. They find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And it's worth thinking about what is the relevance of shepherds here. And it is because, you know, in this, this sort of period in first century Palestine, they were quite lowly in society. And what this shows is that the message of Jesus is for everyone. This is not simply for the wealthy. This is not for the wise men, the kings. Um, This is for, it's for everyone, even the most marginalised people. And we can go on from there, thinking about the importance of the shepherds in the way in which we represent uh, the magi, so they are there, Uh, the they are there in the in the adoration of the magi along with the wise men which we talked about in our episode on stars and there are Christmas carols uh, sung about them, one of which is while shepherds washed their watched their flocks, uh, which when I was a small boy, we used to say uh, as shepherds washed their socks uh, at night and this is one of the uh, one of the sort of earliest permitted, uh, hymns Christmas Carols uh, in the English language written around 1700 by Nahum Tate uh, it's based on Luke 2 um, it's sung to the melody of Winchester Old um, by George Kirby and also then by um, Handel's Christmas and I think one of the things is about it is that it is for a while it's one of the only Christmas hymns to be approved of by the Church of England in the 18th century and what this meant was that then it was very widely disseminated across the country with the Book of Common Prayer so it's one of the most widely sung uh, Christmas carols. Uh, Other Christmas carols weren't uh, sanctioned by the church because they were often associated with folk music which was considered far too secular and rustic uh, to be used in formal church services until uh, the end of the 18th century. So there we are Sam a little 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 uh, starter for
0: 10 on Very why good. shepherds and the importance of Christmas carols. I got a bit panicky about um about costumes for nativities so how how would you identify a shepherd in a nativity visually so
1: i have bought many a shepherd's costume for (laughs) a nativity Uh, not only have i worn them myself as a small boy but i have also purchased them for my daughters the most important thing is a shepherd's crook that's key Uh, very difficult to get hold of but one can furnish one oneself you can fashion it yourself but then you also need a sort of a head headdress uh that you wear and then you need some kind of smock uh you can also apply a beard uh, if you have daughters this is very important because you need to dress them up as male shepherds or female shepherds you know whatever uh but but often quite humorous to uh, pen on a beard or not pen on a beard but you know use face paint uh, that, that that would be that would be the what was important for me
0: <laughs> very good very good okay um well uh, I agree entirely, particularly with the crook. And I would like to show. I was idly flicking through the Agricultural History Review of the year nineteen fifty-seven. Of course, you were, as as Vol- as was I. Volume five, number two, oh, uh, which is the one I live one. At pages 91 to 94 and i came across a brilliant article it's my new favorite historical article called notes (laughs) so some notes on shepherds staves and so i'm going to talk a little bit about um, why we think shepherds have crooks and if they actually did have crooks and and what they were changed for and i really really enjoyed this very much indeed um first thing i discovered I, i didn't know what the crook was for do you know what it's for It's for
1: pulling sheep out of places, isn't it? You put it round a sheep's neck when they get stuck in things.
0: Yeah, or leg, or something like that. So um, um, it it has become a, a symbol of Christian care... Um, There's quite a lot of symbolism going on with sheep and shepherds in in, in Christianity. I actually found a really great description here saying, Our behaviour patterns and life habits are so much like that of a sheep, it's well nigh embarrassing. Sheep are slow, weak, foolish, nervous, fearful, helpless and most importantly, totally dependent on their shepherd. I'm not sure I completely agree with this. the care of the shepherd profoundly impacts the condition of the sheep. Under one man, sheep would struggle, starve and suffer endless hardship. In another's care, they would flourish and thrive contentedly. I think that last bit's true, at least. Um, anyway, you've come back to the shepherd and his symbol of having this crook and it being, um, being a symbol of care. But this chap who wrote the article, one L.F. Saltzman, um, basically it looked through every... ...visual representation he could find in illuminated manuscripts, paintings, carvings... Um, ...to try and identify how the shepherd's crook changed over time. And he interestingly only found one or two examples of there being a crook... ...so having this curved head, like a, a kind of a, a over-large walking stick. It's about head height, curved head, often with a little flick at the end. He only found one or two of examples before 1475... Now, before then, what we see most of the time is the shepherd carrying either a plain staff or a stick, or, or basically a long stick, or a club. Um, there are a couple of examples I just want to share with you, which um, the sources he came across are just, oh, just wonderful. So Chartres Cathedral, um, a, a fairly serious demonstration of... Gothic art, particularly French Gothic art, it's, it's a masterpiece, the the high point of Gothic art and architecture. Carved uh, Western Front, very much like the carved Western Front of Exeter Cathedral, our local cathedral where you've got detail of the Annunciation of the Shepherds. This is at Chartres. Um, you've got the, an angel announcing the birth of Christ. Then you've got several shepherds. And interestingly, they all either have or had, because they've broken off some form of stick or some form of crook. And, or one of the ones is, without any doubt, it's a twisted club rather than being the 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 crook that we know another example in the V&A museums where you can find examples of most things in history if you want to this is a German ivory carving again from the 13th century They've got three shepherds, each one with a very plain club. Um, so th- this has been interpreted as being a, a weapon, a tool, something used for defence of themselves as well as a defence of the sheep. But, you know, fighting off bandits, but also fighting off wild animals and wolves. So something that's used aggressively rather than that is used to care or to control which is what the shepherd's crook as we know it the the long example with the curved head is used for Another wonderful example in the Hortus Delicarum um, of Herod von Landsberg. This is around 1175 and Herod von Landsberg or Herod of Landsberg is our new favourite Alsatian nun. She is an abbess of Hohenberg Abbey in the Vosges Mountains and she creates this unbelievable manuscript. Um, and it's, it's particularly fascinating for the, the many observations that you can see in it which tell us that it was made by a woman anyway uh it was actually the the manuscript itself was destroyed in the in the nineteenth century but there are a few examples surviving um, and it has a, a wonderful example of uh, of a club where you've got the it's a kind of a thinner uh, at one end and it's curved into almost like a crook but it's like an embryo crook it's not quite a crook it's like a it's it's a it's kind of an interesting variation, a transition between the simple stick or the club, and then the crook. Um, and there are various others around this period, twelve hundred to fourteen hundred, of of what um, is more like a hockey stick or, or kind of like a, a seven iron, uh, if you if you're a golfer. Um, and then there are others as well which have spoons on the end, which are really interesting, almost like a, a, a little. A little spade and there is some uh discussion over how these were used but generally it considered that if you're walking along behind your your sheep and one strays you can you can basically dig up out of the ground a, a sod of earth or you can get a a stone and then you can use your crook to flick it uh, much further than you could possibly throw it and you do that outside uh, the position where the stray sheep is, and that would bring uh, bring that sheep back into your flock. Um, and this was known as an oulette, H-O-U-L-E-T-T-E. It's a French word, there isn't an English equivalent. Um, so there's a bit more discussion to be had, I think, about how these oulettes work, and also how the oulette having this spoon, or uh, whatever it was on the end, um, spade, was actually transformed into a crook. Um, Another point to make as well, there are also some wonderful examples in illuminated manuscripts of shepherds playing some kind of form of proto-hockey. They're often depicted with their crook, the the one that looks like a hockey stick or a seven iron, but also with a ball. Um, So uh, it's a way of um, maybe whacking a ball around across the landscape as you are moving through it. So perhaps a little bit of history of sport, particularly the history of hockey there in the history of the shepherd's crook.
2: Oh, Sam, that's lovely. One of the things strikes me, uh, listening to
1: what you're saying, is the connection between that and uh, the Christian church uh, through the bishop's staff or the crozier, um, which is in the shape of a shepherd's crook. So this is the sort of ceremonial... Uh, staff that they would have carried in in ceremonies along with the mitre the pectoral cross and the episcopal ring and again it's about the symbolism or the important symbolism of the shepherd within the church you know, christ as a shepherd of men and so it is it, it emphasizes that pastoral role that they would have had but i want to take us in a different direction and and Tangential to what your starting point, which was nativities and what would a shepherd look like. I want to riff with that in a different way and to think about oral histories of nativities. And this was inspired by an article uh, a while ago uh, in, I think, the Spectator magazine or something like that, um, which uh, reviewed uh, various writers, key writers, and their memories of their roles in nativities. And one John Elledge, who's City Metric editor, was in fact a shepherd. And he writes, um, "'I was first shepherd. My "'My first line was, "'Oh, what a wonderful night for stars. "'I remember giggling really badly during the first rehearsal saying I'm embarrassed and being shouted at if I didn't pull it together they'd give the part (laughs) to someone else which actually seems a bit harsh I mean to be honest that does seem a bit harsh for somebody uh, who's who's a small child and he, he writes that is honestly my only memory of the experience it was about 30 years ago and it actually made me think about how much these early memories of Christmas stay with you. And then I found this wonderful article, in, of all places, the East Anglian Daily Times. And they did a little oral history project a while ago, asking people who grew up in the 50s, 60s and 70s, or even earlier to remember what their Christmases were like. How did they celebrate it and all of that kind of thing. And they start off by giving some memories of nativity plays. And they seem to have got this information through Facebook groups, uh, the, the Ipswich group, and also writers on their staff and that kind of thing. So one Iris Morris Uh, said that of Nativity Plays, I was always one of the wise men as I was tall and my dad always complained loudly from the audience about me catching my death of cold in my bare feet. We had a wonderful Christmas party put on at the gpo where my brother worked that's what she remembers christine godfrey glenn said us godfrey girls all had long hair for some reason the teachers at smart street school in ipswich thought that made us good candidates for angels we wore white sheets tinsel halos and cardboard wings with crepe paper feathers glued on them lovely memories cheryl Fulcher,
2: uh, who
1: Lives in Norwich, remembers, uh, my mum made me an angel dress out of her beautiful 1950s wedding dress at at the Avenue's nativity play. I had a tinsel halo along with nine other angels. My brother John was playing a policeman in a different play. He became ill and had a pain in his hip. The show must go on, so his teacher made him a police car out of a wooden trolley, and the little milk bottles were carried in so he could still be in the play. That night he was rushed to the Jenny Lind Hospital and was seriously ill for several weeks and then homeschooled for months. Adrian Hamilton Watering said, I was always the person who had the most lines at my Sproston infant school in the 50s which usually meant standing on the side of the stage in full view in Sibley costumes. I remember being a Christmas tree which my mother made out of green material with small fir tree branches sewn onto it. Also, a scarecrow with straw coming out of the sleeves, an early Wurzel gummage. But it's not just nativities that people remember. They remember all sorts of things relating to Christmas. Many people remember... School dinners, uh, including one Judy Rimmer, who said, "'When I was at school in Framlingham in the 1970s, "'the dinners there couldn't compete with home food, "'but I do remember the Christmas dinner being a big event "'which we eagerly looked forward to. "'We all queued up for turkey, roast potatoes, stuffing, etc., "'and had a big plateful. "'If I remember rightly, everyone had to take something of everything.' I'm not sure if we had custard as an option with Christmas pudding. I think there was some sort of sweet white sauce instead as a special treat, though I suspect it would have had any brandy in it. And there were also other things that people remembers. Um, Uh Leslie Firth remembers... I always remember the smell on Christmas morning of the turkey having been cooked overnight. They were wonderful days. The stocking on the bed always contained mandarins and chocolates, then little surprises and a comic. Jean uh, Walker Bayliss recalled, It was Christmas morning, 1945. The house was chilly, but after checking my Christmas stocking and finding a new toothbrush, orange and nuts, I could smell breakfast cooking To the kitchen I hastily went. My mother was cooking real English sausages, scarce during the war, bacon, eggs and mushrooms and fried bread. Mm. The radio was playing Christmas music. That was my first Christmas without war. Our dinner was usually a home-grown chicken with sage and onion stuffing. Bread sauce, Brussels sprouts, mashed potatoes. It's making me hungry just listening to this. Peas, little sausages around the chicken, Yorkshire puddings, plum pudding with hard brandy sauce with silver, threepence, coins, crackers and paper hats to put on. In the afternoon... Dad had a car in 1947. There were visits to grandmother and great-uncles. Or this could have been on Boxing Day to have high tea with all the goodies. Who needed gifts when we had all that homegrown food? And one of my favourite things, things that people remembered is playing games with the family. And I love board games at Christmas. It's one of the things that we all love doing as a family. But have you ever, Sam, heard of a game called My Friend's Chair... No, but I love it already. Okay, okay. You you think about all the things that you act out charades and other parlour games. This, listen to this. This is uh, one Eleanor Ellis writes this, and I think she's alone in in this game. Um, The tradition in my family was to play a round of a game called My Friend's Chair After Christmas Dinner. Half the guests would leave the room, and those left behind would each choose one of those now absent to be their friend. The first group would come back in one at a time, while the room chanted, ''This is my friend's chair! This is my friend's chair!'' at them, each person patting a chair in an enticing manner. The player would have to decide Who was most likely to be their friend and sit down beside them, either to be cheered and allowed to remain or booed from the room? And she adds, The game endured a couple of decades or more until newer members of the family, by marriage, rebelled on the basis that it was not good for their self-esteem. To this day, I've never met anyone else who's ever played this game. I think we should play that. This You should play that this Christmas at your house, Sam, (laughs) with your family. (laughs) I think I will. Excellent, excellent. Well, that's 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 my
0: oral history of shepherds. Shepherds, yes, (laughs) via chairs, via chairs. Very good, yeah, very good, very good. Um, I just uh, briefly tell you about one thing I came across, which I loved. Um, It's by Hans Sebold Beham, Beham, B E H A M. Um, It is from a a pamphlet which has now been lost. It's a copy. Uh, dating to 1524. It was made in Berlin and it's called The Sheepfold of Christ. Um, It's a woodcut. Um, Really interesting thing for many, many reasons. So we started off talking about shepherds in the uh, the, the Christmas story, um, but there's plenty of other examples of sheep going on in the Bible. And people's responses to that over time tells us a great deal about the history of the times in which they live. Particularly here, as I say, 1524 Berlin, so the Reformation in Germany. Very interesting time indeed to be studying the way that um, religious uh, imagery was manipulated and used to reflect different uh, changing beliefs And this is all based on the parable of the good shepherd from John. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches the sheep and scatters them. The hired hand flees because he is a hired hand and doesn't care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and I'm known by my own. Even as the father knows me and I know the father... I lay down my life for the sheep. This is a very well-known parable, and um, it's particularly great deal of focus placed upon it during the uh, Reformation. Also, bear in mind that it's not just the Reformation; it's also the Eighty Years' War uh, in this period. Um, so, in a, a great deal of uh, cultural. Um, uh, Reactions and revolts, uh, particularly a revolt here against um, against Philip, uh, the king and the Pope. Um, and this isn't just a- about physical fighting; it's all played out as well in propaganda. And one of the ways of this happening was was huge uh, through pamphlets, prints, and broadsheets. And here we're looking at an example of a print, and um, um, they, they've taken the this this parable and um, basically kind of turned it into what you might be more familiar with is a, a kind of cartoon from the 18th century um what you've got here is a shepherd willing to lay down his life for his flock unlike the hired hand who flees at first sight of the wolf and that's the, essentially the difference between the two and it could be easily applied to the political reality of the day, not least the fact that Philip II, so he's the king of Spain, um, was the question here being we're playing with is was he a good shepherd for his people and I think a lot of them would have said no at the time. Um, You've also got this parable of the sheep being members of God's flock uh, Contrasted with the cruel wolf That's the wolf who's going to menace, scatter And then ultimately devour them um, so here you've got the sheep as an obvious metaphor for the, the faithful, um, those in the church who are exposed to danger uh, and injustice. And I think particularly during the Reformation, the fear here is that they are exposed to false doctrines. Um, the, the woodcut itself is absolutely wonderful. You've got Christ standing in a doorway um, of a wooden sheepfold. He's surrounded by his sheep and he's, he's addressing people in front of him of different social classes. He's encouraging them to um, to come into the sheepfold past him, almost through him. Um, he, he's talking to a, a humble peasant couple, um, which is important because you've got the ideas of the Reformation being particularly resonant for, um, for the peasantry and also for the middle class. And at the same time, there are loads of people climbing onto this building. They're trying to get in um, through the roof, and they're all very uh, clearly Catholics. Um, a Catholic clergy and their their monastics, their, their their monks, and they're all scrambling in, trying to get past him into the into the protection of the sheepfold. So, a wonderful example, James, but one of very many of how German printmark makers um, used this particular parable of the good shepherd to make their point during the the troubles of the Reformation. Oh, Sam, I'm going to take us from the Reformation very briefly to the
1: Inquisition and the Pyrenees in the 14th century. And this is a book, one of my favourite, favourite books. And I've talked about it in the past, but if you don't have a copy, go out and buy one for Christmas. Uh, It's Emmanuel Leroy Laddery's brilliant book on Montaigneux, which is based on Inquisition records. It's the early 1300s in the village of Montaigneux which is surrounded by mountains in the, that region of uh, southern France. Uh, it's full of heretics. And at the start of the 14th century, uh, Bishop of Parmier, Jacques Fournier, uh, launches an elaborate inquisition to stamp them all out. And What this book is based upon is all the inquisition records. And what, he, what um, Emmanuel Leroy Ladery manages to do is recreate the world of this little Pyrenean village and one of the sort of sets of people that he's able to tell an awful lot about is the shepherds because they are people who are caught up in the Inquisition. In fact, see much of their life ruined, uh, social hierarchies challenged. But actually, it's the incidental records when they are questioned over Inquisition matters that are so important for us. And what is, what's stunning is that we know such a lot about shepherds from this, from this um, little village. And there were about ten of them. Who are referred to by name throughout these records, and they belong to at least eight different families within the village. And we know them by name Guillaume Pellissier, who I'm going to talk a little bit about, Uh, Guillaume Bello, Guillaume Gouillabert, Jean Marty, Pierre and Guillaume Bale, Pierre and Jean Maury, Guillaume Moors, and one of the Bennett family. Um, They are absolutely everywhere in life that is going on. And they are people who have fairly unorthodox views in themselves. When one of the men was interviewed by the Inquisition, um, he said, instead of burning heretics, they ought to burn Bishop Fournier himself, because he demands that we pay carnages or tithes in lambs. And this is something that got him into real trouble. But there you can get a real strong impression of the lives of these people and in particular what I'm going to talk about is the itinerant shepherds who really move around that part of the country and they form a network of connections in this sort of part of the Pyrenees and they move from village to village but still contain strong links to Montague. so they fall under the patronage of these people they often get into embroiled in some of the local feuds that happen between the rival clans and what happens when they uh, when when these feuds take place is that certain shepherds are then told because of their loyalties and because of their connections that so they have to withdraw flocks from the rivals lands but also What's interesting about them is what we know about their about their ordinary everyday lives. Several of them are suspected of crimes, and there's one example of a shepherd called John Maury, who's somebody who seems to have taken to the road as an itinerant shepherd because he's got into trouble as a result of some sort of scrap or brawl that he's got into. And when he was when he was quizzed about this. Uh, what it shows is that basically he's somebody who is really um, somebody who's who's sort of filled with wanderla, Wanderlust. So this sort of wanting to actually go walk about. Um, the deposition uh, records, I was involved in a brawl with some shepherds from Raze in which I was injured. A certain Vezian. Who was then living with Raymond Lisier of Montaillou took my part in the quarrel. I went and lodged a complaint about my injuries with Bernard Clerc, who was then Bailey of Montaillou, acting for the Lord Comte de Fau. Uh, I also complained to the Châtelain of Montaillou. He did not want to compensate me for the injury I had received at the hands of the shepherds. Because of this wrong, I left Montaillou and went to where I hired myself out as a shepherd to the lady Brunicende de Cervello. I remained with Brunicende and her sheep for four years and two and a half months, and so it 's actually one of the reasons that people become shepherds is because they fall out of favor they get into trouble, and therefore have to take on this ruined this had to have to take on this this life because their their other life has been has been ruined and that 's fairly representative of many of the shepherds that we see cropping up, but there are other shepherds who Just seem to be, um, you know, actually, they choose to be have that vocation. Uh, They're the younger sons or members of poor families, they, you know, they're from a lower stratum of rural society, and they take on this role as a shepherd partly because they see themselves as fitted to it rather than having fallen down the social hierarchy. And there's one particular uh, shepherd I want to talk about that we know a lot about because of the records.
2: Quite a lot about him. We know,
1: uh, as um, Emmanuel Leroy Laddery says, is that we know that he was, and I quote here, w- um, young Policier was not outstanding for intelligence and he made a poor showing beside his colleague Pierre Maury, who was very bright. Pellissier did not know the surname of his first employer and could not say exactly how old he was when Thomas first engaged him. He was just as vague when he was asked to say how long he had worked for her. He said, I stayed with Tomisia five or six years. So we know that when he when he was about 18 uh, and he was a sta- an established shepherd, he went home and lived there for an indefinite period with his mother, but then he leaves and goes off again. His vandalust was boundless, as it, as it says, uh, and he's taken on as a shepherd elsewhere. Then he sets out again for Montaigu, and then he sort of goes off again. And so there's this real sort of sense in which he is, he sort of, constantly itinerant, constantly moving around. So you get this sense of somebody without any fixed abode. He's then... um, The Inquisition then falls upon the House of Moors and he is questioned about it. And he says this. My employer, Bernard Moors, and his mother, Guillemette were at that time imprisoned for heresy. Pierre Moors, his brother and neighbour, and the other Pierre Moors, his son, were thrown for a while into prison at Carcassonne. The other sons of Pierre Mors, the elder, Bernard Guillaume, were also imprisoned in Carcassonne for heresy. Another Pierre Mors, son of Bernard Mors, fled from Montaigu after the raid by the Inquisition on the local heretics and he settled in Catalonia. He returned to Montaigu two years ago in 1321 in order to marry one of the daughters of Guillaume, Othier of Montailloux, now imprisoned for heresy in Carcassonne. This Pierre Mouz, before setting out again quite recently for Catalonia, lived in the village until the beginning of this winter and carefully avoided talking to him. So what's extraordinary about this is that we see his motivation for becoming a shepherd, we can see his itinerant life, but also he's an incredible um, witness to the Inquisition and what happened. But also we get a sense of his day to day life. Uh, the way in which he the way in which he works as a shepherd. And this is the last sort of quote that I'll that I'll give you here. Uh, it was in was it the year thirteen oh eight when all the men in Montague were picked up by the Carcassonne Inquisition or was it the year before? I can't remember very well. Was it during the summer after the hay had been cut or the spring before the meadows were sown? I can't remember that very well either i was with my own sheep at com de gazelle in the meadow belonging to guillem fort and his brothers i myself was on the left of the meadow by the path which leads to the mountain pastures of montaillou to the right of the said path was pierre Bael, son of raymond Bale of montaillou Pierre Bale was grazing sheep in the meadow belonging to Bernard Marty, known as Goat. There were also Jean Marty of Montaigu. He was grazing his sheep in the meadow belonging to him and adjacent to that of Raymond Marty. It might have been noon when, ap- when there appeared upon the said path, coming from Montaigu, Arnaud Vital of Montaigu, wearing a blue surcoat over his tunic, and with an axe hanging around his neck and balancing a great faggot of beechwood, which he was carrying round his neck. Also, with him were two men, each dressed in a brown, hooded mantle over a blue or green garment, and they too carried axes over their shoulders. Arnaud and his companions approached through the field belonging to the Beleuths. Once they saw me and my associates Pierre bail and Jean-Marty, Arnaud came up to Pierre bail greeted him, and was in turn greeted by him. And since, at that time, Arnaud was assistant bailiff of Monthieu, he reprimanded Pierre Bail and Jean Marty for letting their sheep stray over the sown fields. As a joke, Jean said to Arnaud, do these two woodcutters come from Lavalinette? So what we see from this is not only we see the details of the Inquisition and its tentacles, but also we see in real minute detail the small world of 14th century shepherds in Monteu, So the attention to detail there about knowing about the different meadows, some that were devoted to hay, some to pasture, divided between sown in field of the parish and distant outfield in the mountain pastures. So there's this sense of, you know, he may not be educated in an intellectual or academic sense but certainly in terms of his job he has such a great grasp of detail and you can really see very clearly the trade that he was engaged in so there we are sam a
0: medieval shepherd story for you wonderful all stories from monte are amazing aren't they a really really good good place really interesting um thank you all so much for listening to our History of Shepherds we're going to come back with some more Christmas themed stuff um, yet to decide what they're going to be but I promise you they'll be super good fun Um, if you want to find out more about what we're doing please follow me on social media I'm at Dr Sam Willis and uh, if you're interested in maritime and naval history do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast I too am on social media you can follow me
1: on Twitter at James Daybell you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod we are also on Instagram and Facebook So find us there We have a website Historiesoftheunexpected.com Where you can find out everything that we have been up to And we are also selling signed books for Christmas We have our big book Histories of the Unexpected And we have four little stocking filler books On the Romans The Vikings Tudors And World War II uh, if you would like to support what we're doing, uh, be a patron, head over to patreon.com. And anything that you can give to help us change the way in which people think about the past would be much appreciated. But for now, thank you for listening and take care and see you soon. Yeah, we're back in it guys. Bye-bye.